0: We've converted a number of our arcades, video arcades, because it was kind of a dying business into bars. And what I'm seeing is while the video arcade business was very good to us, the bar business is four to five times more profitable and the sales are four to five times higher. What we're doing is we're replacing video games with bars where people can come in and get a glass of wine or a beer. And people are putting quarters and dollars into video games and we're getting, you know, tens tens of dollars now for, you know, a glass of wine or beer, or spirits.
1: This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America covering the world of theatrical exhibition. Joined today by our full roster of co-hosts, we've got Russ Fisher, Editorial Director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content for movie theaters. We've got Rebecca Pauly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, our Chief analyst at Box Office Pro. In this week's episode, we are going to go over a weekend preview of Nope, the latest film from Universal and Jordan Peele. And in our feature segment, we are gonna be talking to Larry Etter from Malco Theaters. He heads up the food and beverage side for Malco, one of the largest movie theater circuits in the nation. One of the most knowledgeable people in the world of concessions will be going all in on the F&B side, on the concession side of the industry later on in this episode but let's get this started. Let's start this conversation talking about Nope, the new universal title from Jordan Peele. I know Russ, a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned on this podcast, this was going to be probably one of those titles in 2022 that could really be a cultural moment. I know Rebecca and I are really looking forward to it. Sean, you have to be a bit more objective than we are. What is your forecast for this movie opening this weekend?
2: Well, this movie absolutely is is one of those I think we've had on the calendar for a while, essentially since it was announced. It was Jordan Peele's next film, an original movie right in the middle of summer, the kind of thing that everybody wants to see when it's sandwiched between Marvel movies and Minions movies. The, the caveat here is, as we we're recording this, we still have no idea what the reception is. So really all we have to go on is that buzz and that hype for Peele. Some pre-sales figures, but even those for horror films, can really be misleading because they, they usually don't really... Perk up until closer to opening day. I think at at this point, a fair number is, is something around 40 million or higher. That might seem a little bit low compared to us, which opened to 70 million a few years ago. But there are a lot of factors we have to look at right now for this movie.
3: His previous two films, how did they open? I mean, Get Out was obviously very critically acclaimed. Word of mouth on us was less positive, but people really loved that amazingly performance. How did they do?
2: Yeah, so they were essentially polar opposites. Get Out opened to mid-20s, had incredible legs, as we all know. Us open to 70 was very front loaded had mixed reception a lot of people love it i think it's more of a divisive film in terms of audience reception far more than get out which was you know virtually unanimously loved i would kind of say that 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 us run is going to have something of an impact on Nope. Like maybe Peel's brand, I don't I hesitate to say was damaged in any way. It's certainly not, but I think maybe there is some slight hesitation because he's he's one of these young filmmakers, relatively speaking, in terms of his career as a director, who has had a lot of expectation put on him now. And especially I think horror fans are going into this, wondering: is this going to be more like a get out or another us? It reminds me a little bit of where M. Night Shyamalan was about 20 years ago, to be honest.
4: It's funny that you say that, because I think M. Night is, with this movie specifically, M. Night is the most direct comparison, I think. We didn't know for a long time what this movie would be. The first trailer gave you some sense of like, okay, it's probably a UFO or aliens thing. And they have since come out and been far more explicit about that, which is interesting, because... I can imagine a couple of different reasons that they did that. Maybe that was always the plan or maybe somebody at Universal was like, hey, can we tell people kind of what this movie is
1: about? (laughs) Get Out was such a cultural moment. I remember watching that movie at opening weekend with a full packed house, a great audience. I remember those those reactions. I just want to quiz you guys. What do you guys remember of that opening weekend of Get Out? Where did you see it? What was the conversation like from your point of views?
4: I mean I saw it at Sundance.
1: Oh, so saw uh, early around. on. Yeah.
4: They did that screening at Sundance. And, you know, I was a big Keen Peel fan. And uh, some of Peel's sketches were like the weird ones, which I really appreciated. You could tell that he was deep into it, that that like he's not play acting as a guy who's gonna make a horror movie, but like this is meaningful to him. And so that Sundance screening was a big deal. People were like. I think people were curious beforehand and they came out of it pretty psyched, like, wow, that worked. But consequently, it was from there, it was some time after, uh, you know, just a little bit before the movie opened for real. So my interpretation of that opening moment is different because I, you know, I'd been there already.
1: But that, I think we, I want to talk about the festival reaction because that was, I think, a huge benefit that both Get Out had from Sundance. And that us had from that early screening at South by Southwest. I think those early festival audiences with the right people in the press watching them really helped drive that narrative. Crucial point here, guys, that's not what's happening with no No one's seen this movie. No
3: one's seen it who's allowed to talk about it. So we have, which which is kind of scary, but maybe it means Universal knows they have a hit. I mean, I guess uh, we'll find out tomorrow in the press
4: screening. I'm actually, at this point, more likely to re-watch Us, I think, than to re-watch Get Out. And Us is a movie that I think, like a lot of people, my re- reaction to it was mixed when I first saw it, but I like it more and more the more I see it. I also really like the the Candyman remake, which, or, or remake slash sequel, which he produced, and I, that's Nia Costas' movie, but Jordan Peele certainly had a hand in that and in guiding it. And uh, yeah, I, I tend to go back to those movies more than I would have expected to.
3: Yeah, I, had, I haven't seen his uh, his Twilight Zone reboot, but I've, I've heard about it from my, my boyfriend. He's hardcore Twilight Zone. Apparently it sucks.
1: You know what? Unfortunately, Rebecca, I'm going to have to agree with him. I love The Twilight Zone. That show came on uh, in the early days of Paramount Plus, back when it was CBS All Access and only Sean and I were subscribed. And that was one of those uh, landmark tentpole shows that CBS All Access had. It was right after the success of uh, Netflix bringing Black Mirror into the US. Everything was there, this is post us. For Jordan Peele to have a huge hit, a huge cultural moment. And yeah, the show really stunk, unfortunately. And if you pair that with, let's say, the divisive reaction of us that, uh, that Russ spoke about a second ago... I think there are legitimate questions coming up to the release of Nope, especially because there's no conversation around this movie. This movie is going to live and die by word of mouth. Rebecca, from your perspective, I we all know you're a big horror fan. What was your reaction to both Get Out and to us leading into the release of this movie?
3: Well, I saw Get Out, uh, you know, at the press screening, and it was a very raucous screening. Everyone was uh, was very into it. Us was part of my, you know, award season catch-up. So I did watch that on a screener, unfortunately, which, I, you know, I had a hard time hearing things. The sound mix was, was weird. So, I mean, I'm sure that is that is a factor as to, uh, to why I didn't didn't connect with it as much.
1: There's, there's some hesitation. When I saw us at the AMC over on 34th Street in Manhattan, the audience reaction was markedly different than it was in Get Out. I also saw us on opening weekend. And yeah, I think it wasn't the overwhelming support that you got from Get Out, but I think to echo Russ's point, in terms of movies that I'd go walk back and watch and give another shot, I'm a lot more intrigued with Us as time passes than I am with, uh, with something that I think was lightning in a bottle, like Get Out. All of these questions I think are adding up to who knows what's gonna happen this weekend with no when we first start seeing reactions.
3: Well, given that, Sean, I mean, it must be really tough to come up with a range. What number would you give this movie uh, that you would say, like, all right, this this went really well. And on the flip side, what number would you consider like a f- potential flop in the
2: middle? Yeah, it, it's so tough to say. I would, I, I think really to me, anything below 30 would be really concerning and that would probably be a result of some bad reviews coming out. Hopefully that doesn't happen. I think it needs to at least out open, get out, which was mid-20s. I, I don't see it going that low. I think Peel's brand is, has certainly gone up since then. But everything will come down to that word of mouth and i think i think the mystery box aspect to this is is a pro and a con because people really want to go to a movie they don't know anything about, but they they want to like that movie and they want to hear good things about that movie. So the next few days as we're recording this on on Monday will be really crucial for the narrative around this movie once we go into what is really kind of the last, you know, big horror release that's going to be around for a, a few months in terms of major studio temples. You know, maybe there's some upside to really go way past 40 million too, if if those if the reviews and, and social embargoes come down and they're insanely positive, then there could be a lot more upside. So
1: a lot of factors to put into consideration here. Russ, uh, earlier in this conversation, I think you made a a very interesting point in comparing where Jordan Peele is right now in his career to where M. Night Shyamalan was coming out of a cultural uh, juggernaut like The Sixth Sense, then an interesting film with Unbreakable that was not the same thing, but it was still compelling, and leading up to the release of Signs. This is pretty much a, a very similar situation that uh, that Peel finds himself in.
4: I think the takeaway here is really a question, which is how long can Jordan Peel keep doing the mystery box movie? And my answer would be probably not after this, in much the same way that Shyamalan had this sort of, you know, very surprise-oriented, uh, you know, he, he was known for having a twist in the movie. And that became a thing that was... I think it was freeing for him initially because it let him tell stories that were not the expected story. But then that became the thing that people wanted out of him more than anything else. You know, Shyamalan, he he built up. Signs was his peak. And then he did a couple movies after, you know, he did The Lady in the Water and The Village. And those kind of represented his decline. And then he really kind of crashed, certainly with Avatar. I would love to see Jordan Peele not have that same trajectory. I don't want to go too deep on this Jordan Peele M. Night Shyamalan parallel because I think that it's a little bit, it's more than a little bit reductive, but there is something to it at the same time. Shyamalan was positioned explicitly as the next Spielberg. He did not become that. He became the only M. Night Shyamalan, and that's great. Nope, in what Jordan Peele is doing, there's a very clear Spielberg influence in this movie, just from the marketing that we've seen. like It is absolutely there. And you kind of wonder if there might be a point when Peele can like transition to the next phase of his career where he's making bigger, more open movies that are still satisfying and surprising and thrilling. And I hope that for him, really, I hope that he can make the transition to whatever phase he wants to do. I'd like to see him continue making good movies. But I do feel like this is an inflection point or a turning point for him. He can't keep doing mystery box movies over and over. Universal can't keep selling those movies, which I think is indicated by the fact that the marketing for this movie has become more revealing in the run-up because they're like, oh, people you know, people need to know what this is. So I'm curious, I, I, and I think the performance of the movie will have some effect on what he does next and, and why, but I think that regardless, this is a transition point.
3: The question is, or now one of them, After this point, how long does he keep uh, doing original films, and is he ever going to transition to IP? Of course, all
1: speculation. The last thing I want to see happen to Jordan Peele's career is him take some BS Marvel movie or some, you know, desaturated Warner Brothers superhero punch-up.
4: I hope for good things for Jordan Peele. I think he has it in him. I think Jordan Peele has it in him to be... A director who helps shape the popular cinema conversation for many years to come. And I would really like to see that come to fruition.
1: Uh, Sean, Russ, thank you so much for joining us uh, here on the Box Office Podcast. Coming up, we've got Larry Eder from Malco Theatre talking to us about the world of concessions. And we're back here on the box office podcast with Larry Edder, senior vice president at Malco Theaters and director of education at the National Association of Concessionaires. Let's start with what's top of mind for you as you're looking at the concessions world, as you're looking at F&B, what are the biggest things on your mind for movie theaters when it comes to F&B?
0: We normally, in these kinds of cases, would talk about uh, trends and where things are going. And there are some trends. But I would tell you that I think that most people in my position, buyers on the concession side, their biggest struggle right now is sourcing goods. I think that's where we're spending most of our time. If I were to get a little bit technical, I would say that uh, you know, a trend that is, is arising is a lot of theaters now are going cashless which changes the dynamics inside the cinema itself. Some for the positive, some for the negative, but mostly positive. We've had four theaters that are now cashless and I'm pleased with it, but we have to re-educate the moviegoer. Uh, One of the things that's helping that happen is the number of tickets that are being sold online or in advance, advance ticketing. So that's a major trend and it's helping us kind of in that format. So people are prepaying for their tickets. I would say that with that having been said, the next trend is probably going to be some source of mobile ordering for concessions where people can actually order from their phone in advance. Uh, We're already experimenting with some of that here at Malco. So there's a company called Apex Food Ordering Systems. They call them food lockers. I'd like to call them chambers, but it allows someone to order their food in advance and then you can actually put it in a safe, secure place. And then the guest can pick it up when they arrive. So that's something that's in the works. But again, it it plays along with what I think the biggest trend is, and that's becoming more technical in the way we offer food service.
3: I mean, it seems over the last two years in this industry, by necessity, there's been a lot of kind of taking a step back, looking at things, maybe cutting things that don't work. Definitely. I mean, it's a time when the industry needs to save as much money as they can save, given everything else that's been going on. You know, it kind of ties in with the transition to cashless, you know, making everything more efficient. Tied to that, I mean, you spoke a bit about this in your uh, CinemaCon panel. Are you seeing cinemas scale back on their menus
0: Absolutely. I don't think it's because we wanted to to start with it. I think it's out of necessity because of the supply chain issues. You know, one of the notes that I made was that uh, many of us in the industry are having to reconstruct our planograms. In other words, the candy or confection designs that we have in our candy cases because there's so many shorts. So many times something comes in and is out, and then it's in. PMI brands, for example, before the pandemic had 135 SKUs of different candies. OK, as of, I would say, April, they told me they have 35 SKUs. So they're cutting out all the diversity. They're coming up with one size and they're basically going to sell, you know, their top brands in a specific size. So that's a significant change in the way that we've been doing business in the past. And, you know, it's going to be the new challenge for us.
3: i to ask you to predict the future, but has there been any indication as to when the supply chain problems for these these concessions or this areas are going to even out a little bit.
0: The first rumor was that the supply chain issues would be kind of solved in December of last year, and then they kind of pushed it off to what they called the first quarter. And what we're seeing is residual uh, things, so for example, if you ordered coconut oil and it came in a bladder, a plastic bag, Ventura Foods had plenty of oil, but they couldn't get resin to make the bags. And so if you had bag-in-the-box uh, coconut oil, you're basically screwed because it's the container, it's the resin, and you know there's been uh, paper pulp issues, which, you know, limits cardboard. It's limited how many kids' trays can be made. You know, it rolls all downhill. So it's not just necessarily food ingredients. Sometimes it's the packaging that's the problem you can't get.
1: I remember seeing pictures of people going to one circuit with packaging, including the branding of another circuit on there. Everyone's just trying to pull together here and trying their best to make sure these disruptions don't hit the consumer. So let's talk about the consumer right now, because if I'm a moviegoer and I'm not plugged into what's going on, what are the things that I'm going to have a hard time finding at a movie theater today?
0: Now, that, that's, going to, that's going to change from circuit to circuit, but I will tell you that there are a couple of large circuits that use nacho cheese in a pre-portioned cup. They cannot get the cups right now. Therefore, those two circuits have basically put up signs in the concession stands. We temporarily are out of nachos. We can't serve nachos because we don't have nacho cheese. Talking with some of my colleagues, Rob Novak at Marcus, uh, Bill Leclerc at National Amusements, we agree that there are probably three or four key items that people are buying. They're buying hamburgers, they're buying pizza, they're buying chicken tenders, and maybe a chicken sandwich all that other stuff, the numbers were so soft that we've made a conscientious effort to roll that back. I would say that we probably have 12 to 14 cinemas that have what we call a big menu, and it does still offer uh, fruit and cheese, sauces and cheese, a couple of appetizers, those five core items. Then we drop down to another 10 to 12 uh, theaters that do Basically fried foods, so they're going to continue to do the pizzas. They're going to continue to do chicken tenders. They're going to do French fries and and you know uh, funnel cake fries. Those kinds of things that are you know expanded. And then we we basically have the rest of the theaters just have those those core items that I just talked about, three items. So I think we've been somewhat diligent based on you know we our locations are lined out that like every other theater will be. A heavier menu and then the next one would be a little bit lighter and so you know the guests can kind of choose now we're very fortunate Malco that we've got you know a dominant market here in Memphis we've got 12 locations so we have that affordability I don't know that people that are independent theaters have that you know kind of um, capability
3: and are you seeing that the customers standards are higher uh, when it comes to the freshness of food
0: well I, I've been preaching this for a long time Uh, When we first started the dine-in concept, I have told all of my colleagues and anybody that'll listen, the food service that we offer in theaters has to be better than what we see in your neighborhood casual restaurants, because people are going to compare. And if our food service isn't as good, if the quality isn't as high, they won't opt to eat in our facilities. They'll just stop someplace on the way. So when we started the dine-in concept, my theory has always been we're also now competing with all the local restaurants within, you know, a a three or four block radius of whatever that theater is. And I think that still holds true. The the other thing that you bring up, uh, I I spoke about at – CinemaCon in our panel, one of the discussions was about uh, the seven quickest subconscious uh, decisions uh, patrons make, and one of them was the freshness of the food. You know, we went down through sanitation, we went through cleanliness, we went through value, we went through, you know, but there are seven, and one of those was fresh, made for just made for you. And so, uh, I think Daniel, you're 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 spot on. We have to concentrate on you know fresh high quality, the best ingredients, because we have to win the customers back, not only f- with movies, but the entire experience. And that's, that's where we gain uh, leverage over, you know, the streaming devices and people sitting at home. You know, we, we have the complete package.
3: Larry, I, I feel like there's a, there's a consensus now or an idea now. If you're going to open a new theater, it has to have recliners because that's what people expect. Is it going to be the same thing with alcohol?
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think what we're finding out now, here's the reality. When we started uh, Dine-In Theaters, we added alcohol. I think we found out now that alcohol was really the key ingredient. And now the food and beverage side, the heavier items support the alcohol side, if that makes sense. We might have done things backwards. I think we went towards the food end and tried to compete with restaurants on food and we found out that alcohol is the, is the new norm the full scale of uh, food and beverage. So I think that a lot of people, they want to have a beer, a glass of wine, a vodka tonic, but they don't necessarily just want to, you know, do that. So if you offered fruit and cheese or you offer a burger to go with their beer, those kinds of things, I, I think that's the package. I'll give you an example. We've converted a number of our arcades, video arcades, because it was kind of a dying business into bars. And what I'm seeing is while the video arcade business was very good to us, the bar business is four to five times more profitable and the sales are four to five times higher. What we're doing is we're replacing video games with bars where people can come in and get a glass of wine or a beer and people are putting quarters and dollars into video games and we're getting, you know, tens, tens of dollars now for, you know, a glass of wine or beer or spirits. So. You know, things have changed. It's interesting because I thought the film industry, the theater industry, the cinematic experience was really built around kids. That's one of our highest demographics that visit theaters, right? You guys know what the percentages are on under the age of 21 going to movies. But the dynamics have changed now where we're actually catering to people over the age of 30. I find that interesting as a different sort of dynamic in the cinema industry. We've always tried to coach, teach, Kids go to the movies every Friday night or every Saturday. We all know that the cinemas, all of us in the industry believe that we become the babysitter for, you know, America's children on Friday nights. You know, we take them all in and uh, the parents go off and do something and come back and pick them up three hours later. So I do think the dynamics are changing and the way we're focused on our patrons. We're, we're looking at a, an older demographic now. I don't think there are many you know, 12-year-olds that want a burger or a steak and a salad when they go to the movie theater. I think the dynamics are they want chicken tenders and French fries.
1: Right now that inflation is such an issue, but as you see expanded F&B increase its market share in the United States, Larry, how do you think this is going to even out for the consumer? Do you think concession prices have to stable or be lower to be competitive, even as you bring more elements into menus?
0: I have two or three different answers for you here. So first of all, one of my focuses was as vice president at Malco, is to keep the pricing and concessions very reasonable as we try to attract people back. So to your point, the overwhelming position for our guest is that we overcharge for sodas and popcorn and candy. Now, the thing that I will tell you on the restaurant side or dine-in side, we've always tried to keep our our prices as competitive as possible. Now the difference is, if you have that core set of sales in concessions, and when I say concessions, I'm really talking about sodas, popcorn, and candy. Those items are going to drive the business. Okay, And that's where the profitability and the margins are. For us to enter into the dine-in business and compete with restaurants, I think our prices have to be comparable. So for example, we're not charging $20 for a hamburger. I'm looking at the local burger joints here in Memphis and saying, what are their typical prices for a burger? So burger and fries is $9.50. It fits right in line with what I call our competitors on the dine-in side. I do think you bring up a very good point and we're all challenged with this right now and that is inflation. Coconut oil is almost doubled in price. Paper goods is almost tripled in price. Plastics is almost tripled in price. And we're absorbing all of those costs at this particular point. But for the life of me, I I don't know how we can charge more when we're facing the kind of crisis that we're going to see in the next few months with inflation and a possible recession we have to be very, very smart. I think that we did take some slight increases. We've taken five to 6% increases. One of the things that we're all finding as buyers on on the concession side is that through the pandemic, we weren't buying very much and we didn't see many price increases because there were no supplies and we were closed. But we've gone 24 to 30 months, okay? And all of a sudden now we're seeing 18 and 20% increases in confection. Over a three year period, that would probably be normal. I would say, you know, seven, five percent every year is probably about right. So if you haven't had a price increase, you know, for three years because of the pandemic, now all of a sudden it's coming to roost and it's hitting us all in one felled swoop. And it's really hard to swallow because we haven't been doing business for, you know, the past twenty-four months and the scale that we're doing it now inflation is an issue i know my perspective my philosophy is going to be to try to keep prices as reasonable as possible when people are coming back i don't want them to get burned
1: it's going to be a challenge you you bring up a great point it's something that i deal with week to week now we've got the national association of concessionaires Expo, your annual convention coming up next week over in Orlando. I love this event. I'm so excited. This is going to be your first time attending. Uh, It's a great opportunity to see all the things that are happening in such an influential part of the cinema business. Because as we know, studios, movies, that's only part of the conversation when we talk about exhibition. f concessions are really a leading part of the revenue when we talk about exhibition. Now at CinemaCon, we always love going there because we get to hear about the latest releases coming up. It's a big studio preview of what we can expect later on in the year. What I love about NAC is you get to hear more in-depth conversations about the other parts of the business. Uh, Rebecca, what are the things that you're most interested in finding out at the NAC Expo coming up next week?
3: Well, I'm uh, I'm really excited for some of those off-site uh, venue tours. Uh, we're going to uh, Camping World we'll Stadium and the Amway Center. You know, just getting insights from other industries to see. How that uh, can carry on, and just yeah, I mean, I don't really know what to expect because this is my first time. So, uh, Larry, in terms of uh, programming and education, uh, what kind of stuff can we expect from the show this year?
0: Well, NAC always relies on um, people in the know, so to speak. Um, that I think one of the key components is going to be uh, they're going to have a representative from Coca Cola to discuss the latest Harris study on theater going and most of us that are coca-cola partners we have kind of seen the study but it's going to be great for to have someone there available to kind of give us you know the verbal kind of definitions that they uncovered in their research and and what they've been showing so i think that's you know a great way to start the event there are other key components where there'll be a number of uh, round table and panels Uh, one of the best, most attended events is the breakout sessions. And what NAC does is it puts all the theater people in a room. They put all the stadium people in a different room. They put the convention operators uh, in a different kind of room. And folks sit around and they talk about best practices. All of us get to hear ideas on how to perfect the way we're doing things. I think it's really interesting because it sets everyone in that room on the same platform. It doesn't matter what size your circuit, doesn't matter what your position, people are pretty open about discussing the successes they've had, and some of the challenges they've overcome. And it really helps everybody else, you know, in the industry, in our channel of business, to keep moving forward in a positive manner. So I think the breakout sessions is one of the most valued things. I also think, Rebecca, you brought up a great point, And that is the, the venue tours, where we get to go see how other people are doing business. And we get to walk through their back rooms, we get to hear what their success stories are. And you wouldn't get that in any other convention. If you go to CinemaCon, you're not going through, you know, 14 different cinemas and looking at what's going on. You have to do that on your own. NAC is basically providing that option for you as a support. While CinemaCon has uh, a lot of programming based on films being released and studio productions, NAC doesn't get a significant amount of time at CinemaCon, whereas at NAC, it's 100% focused on the food and beverage side. And so from that standpoint, NAC really supports CinemaCon in a different fashion. It's just a different time. So, you know, we go to we go to Las Vegas, we visit CinemaCon, we see what the studios have, but to get the real meat and potatoes, so to speak, of uh, food and beverage and concessions, NAC supports all of that. It supports it with educational products and pillars with the CCM program, with regional seminars, and then of course, you know, the networking and breakout sessions that they do at, uh, at their own convention. So I think NAC really is as important as CinemaCon to the, film, uh, the food and beverage guy as anything else.
1: If you could share this with us, uh, Larry, we know Malco is privately owned, but if you could give us uh, some sort of benchmark here on how much F&B represents for a regular cinema's revenue.
0: I would say that pre-pandemic, I'm going to talk in general for most of the the industry, not necessarily Malco, but I would say most of the industry would say that 40 to 45 percent of the income came from concessions or food and beverage. With the addition of dine-in theaters and alcohol, I think that number now is somewhere between 60 and 70% for us. That's where the primary growth is, and I think that's what the target is for the people who are looking into the future. Film costs has gotten so high at this particular point, we don't want to increase ticket prices because we want people coming back to the cinema. And so how are we going to keep our margins and, and, and pay our bills? And it's actually coming through the food and beverage side more now than ever.
1: Well, Larry, thank you so much for your insights and for your time. That was Larry Eder, the SVP over at Malco Theaters and Director of Education at the National Association of Concessionaires. And that does it for this week's edition of the Box Office Podcast. On behalf of myself and our co-hosts, Rebecca Pauly, Russ Fisher, and Sean Robbins, Thanks again for listening. We'll be back here next week on Thursday with another episode. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro, the box office company, and Record Edit Podcast. Thanks again for your support.